I'm Chelsea Bay. And I'm Shay. Together, we are Fulfillment. Fulfillment is a storytelling event featuring local community leaders and entrepreneurs who share their personal journey towards fulfillment through vocation that will challenge you to come alive. The following stories are true, and no one's identity has been protected. Here is Fulfillment Stories podcast number 34. Leah Bagden McCollum is a waitress turned grant writer turned proud government employee. She charted her career path based on her mission to improve the quality of life for all around her. Whether helping to build a women's hospital in Chicago, saving the Detroit Zoo, or helping Goodwill provide housing, jobs, and food for folks in her region, or her current role with one of Michigan's terrific U.S. senators, Leah believes that she can make her backyard better. Here's her story from the January 2017 event. Introduce Leah, um, who I met through being a graphic designer with. Again, I got that relating part. Um, she was working at Goodwill. Um, I think she's been on the 40 under 40 list. She is a very influential person in our area, but she's just herself. Um, and that's what I love so much about her. So I'll let her tell her um, whoopee cushion and teeth story. Can I get a little mood lighting, please? Thank you. Oh, a little more than that. Oh, oh. That's all right. No strobes. Damn, all right. Well, I need a tan this year. This is a good start. Pete's here. I'll get started and you can color me up. There we go. Oh, thank you. That's easier. All right. So 2006 was a really big year for me. I had my wisdom teeth pulled, and I have one of them here. Because I made it into a Christmas ornament, because that's normal. Um, Every year when I hang this on my tree, I'm reminded of the day that it was pulled. It was also the day that made me think twice about public service. Tonight, I'm going to tell you about that day. So in 2006, I was living downtown Chicago on the corner of Clark and Huron Streets. I had landed my first big kid job as a fundraiser for Northwestern Memorial Hospital. My office window looked right down on the roof of the Michigan Avenue Nike town. For a waitress and substitute teacher from Elk Rapids, this felt really cool. Big city. My wardrobe had to get more collared. The lunchtime martini was a thing. I was literally rubbing elbows with Oprah and guys from the Chicago Bears because they all supported the hospital where I worked. The research that I helped to fund changed the standard of care for breast cancer and for premature babies. The work really mattered, and I was really proud of it. So with this gratifying job came great health insurance, and I could finally afford to have these guys yanked. Uh, So on Monday, October 22nd, I had them pulled at a little office on Randolph Street, a few blocks down from that silver Millennium Park bean that we all get a selfie with. Surgery went great, obviously. Um, My then-fiancé, now-husband Chandler, had to collect me because I was super doped up. Gentleman that he is... Chandler took my bag, went to get the car, and planned to pick me up on the Randolph Street sidewalk. So off he went. I stood on the sidewalk waiting for him to pull up. And this is where things got weird. As he turned the corner towards the parking deck, policemen barricaded the street behind him. They were securing a parade route, a parade to welcome 700 boxers from 120 different countries who were competing in the World Boxing Championship, a uh, Beijing Olympic qualifying event. 
Who knew? Um, so just picture this. My face is completely numb from anesthesia. I can't feel anything. I'm swollen. I look like a gerbil with blood just dripping down my chin, and I'm standing there on a blocked street. Even if I could speak, Chandler had my phone. He had my purse. I couldn't call him to tell him that the road to me had just been shut down. So I panicked. I sat down on the gum-spattered sidewalk. I was woozy from fear, a lot of drugs, and I just kind of sat there tripping out. (laughs) So as I'm sitting there in this total drug-induced panic, something hits my shin, and a woman starts throwing change at me, and she says, poor dear, that's so sad. She thought I was begging and panhandling. A police officer on horseback approached me, and he said, ma'am, you're going to have to move along. No begging here. So I just started bawling. I tried to explain, but my mouth didn't work, and the more frantic I got, the more blood starts coming down my chin. The officer gets off his horse, and he walks over and looks me in the eyes, like trying to check my sobriety. Desperately, I gestured for a pen and paper, because if I couldn't use my mouth, I hoped to be able to explain myself. He got a blank parking ticket out of the saddlebag on his horse and a pen from beneath the shiny badge on his shirt. And I wrote out, oral surgery, fiancé trying to pick me up. Please help. And I wrote Chandler's name and his phone number. And I could tell this guy was in a pretty bad mood. I mean, I totally hate parades. He probably did too. But he read my note, calmed down, he smiled, he called Chandler with this hand, and with the other one, he radioed his team. Together, these policemen paused the whole parade. Time out. They moved the barricades, they made a path for Chandler's silver Chevy Impala to get through. Officer opened the passenger door for me. I get in, tips his hat like a cowboy. Off we go. Now, prior to this, my only interactions with cops were getting in trouble for underage drinking in Cherry Orchards in Kuwaitin. Sorry, Mom and Dad. They're over there. Um, I got some speeding tickets. So granted, in each of these things, I was out of line. But it still shaped my perception of police officers. But this cop, who parted the sea of the parade to save me from a career as a panhandler. It's kind of my hero. He, he stopped everything around him, just took a huge time out, focused on me, one little person in this great big city, and he made a difference for me. And the big thing I want to point out is that he, in that moment, made public service look really good. So from that day forward, I went out of my way to wave at cops, and I started waving at all civil servants and public workers. So the garbage guy, the snowplow guy, all the, all the people in the city uniform, I would just wave and smile. And I startled them. And I think I had this feeling that they were thinking that no one had ever been kind to them before. So a year later, Chandler's job took him from Chicago to Detroit. And we love Chicago, but we were homesick for Michigan. So I found a job as a grant writer with the Detroit Zoo. And I was so excited because the zoo... Uh, <laughs> Tigers, lemurs, penguins. I approached the offer like a five-year-old kid. I had fond memories of visiting the zoo when I was young, looking at the otters through the glass and yelling at sleeping lions, trying to get them to wake up, which is so evil, but I did. I, I was so excited to work with these animals that I just I didn't even think to ask about the humans that would be around me. I, during the interview, I didn't ask questions beyond, what's the pay and is it cool if I take time off from my wedding? I didn't ask about the zoo's finances, which was so stupid because this was a fundraising job. I didn't ask about the team I'd be working with or how this job even came to be open. I just took it because I thought it sounded cool. It was 2008. Barack Obama was running for president. Detroit was electric. It was just buzzing. And not just over Obama, but because then Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick was tearing up headlines for all kinds of really naughty X-rated stuff. We've got other juicy headlines right now, but these were, these were pretty juicy back then, too. 
So at the time of my hire, the zoo was technically owned by the city of Detroit. Therefore, I technically reported to Mayor Kilpatrick. My role in this scandalous hierarchy was to raise about $10 million a year for operations. And I can tell you that no matter how cute your baby giraffe is or how many polar bears you're going to rescue from a Costa Rican surface, circus, circus, people won't give you a single red cent if Kwame Kilpatrick is making the ask, especially while facing allegations related to dead strippers in your basement. True story. That happened. My job, my job was totally impossible. The city's culture affected the zoo's culture, and I was miserable. I couldn't find fulfillment in my work, so I challenged myself to get out of as much work as I possibly could. I discovered TMZ.com. Anybody ever <laughs> gone down that hole? <laughs> I spent hours looking at botched celebrity nose jobs. I planned my wedding from my mauve cubicle at work. While at work, I actually ordered 300 of these whoopee cushions um, to be favors at my wedding. Did you guys not have whoopee cushions at your wedding? We did. It was a lot of smiling people farting. Um, I even had the audacity to have those things delivered to my office at the zoo. Nobody noticed. By early 2009, I was taking a daily pilgrimage to the park concession stand to get Dippin' Dots and French fries. Nobody noticed. Looking back, it actually was the lowest I've ever felt because I was invisible. I had no trust for the leaders above me, no love for the colleagues beside me, and no connection to the community that was around me. I just felt like I didn't matter. To be fair, there's all kinds of stuff that I did and still love about Detroit. Eastern Market, Dirty Dog Jazz Cafe, my DIA membership, hearing live music beside Diego Rivera's Detroit Industry Mural. These gems didn't anchor me, though. We were homesick for here. So Chandler and I both started applying for Up North jobs. I never again wanted to feel as worthless as I felt at the zoo. So I got organized. I made a list of five must-have things for my next gig. A seat at a leadership table. I wanted to feel value in my work. To work with people I liked. This time, I'd meet the people I was going to work with before I took the job. To have a social impact. To improve somebody's quality of life. Not a desk job. No more TMZ and public service. I had to get involved in the community that I would live in. I decided that if I could check these five boxes, that I'd be happy. The plan worked. I found a job as Goodwill's Director of Advancement, as Chelsea mentioned, and I felt like I fit there. My work mattered again. And to check that fifth box, that public service box, I joined the Chamber's Young Professionals Organization and their Government Relations Committee. My friend Colleen's here, and she was there, uh, one of the first people I met when I came to this town. Through that group, I learned about the inner workings of the city. Our primary objective was to get young people in office. And at that time, there were three open seats on the Traverse City Downtown Development Authority Board of Directors, and I thought, hmm, three seats, it's pretty good odds. So I, I applied. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to get rejected, but I applied. My committee peers made me their project. They helped me prepare for the board appointment. They set up meetings with past DDA board members and city staff. They took me to lunch and mock interviewed me. They bought me a whole lot of Courage beers. <laughs> and for all of it, I'm still really grateful because it worked. I was appointed to the DDA by then Mayor Chris Bizdock, and I was only 28. To be clear, I was totally terrified. I was kind of shocked that I made it. I was the second woman and the youngest person to ever be appointed to this body. I was 
completely intimidated all the time, but I studied my board packets. I asked a ton of questions, probably annoyed the heck out of Colleen who works at the DDA. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> I lost my place. But eventually, after all that fear, I got my legs back under me. I found my voice, and now I'm in my seventh year of service on the DDA board, and I love it. I was part of the efforts to revitalize this warehouse district that we're in today that brought Pete here. Part of the effort to bring... <laughs> I like Pete too. Uh, part of the effort to bring food trucks to Traverse City. And now we're focusing on fixing up our farmer's market and building workplace affordable housing. And when I drove here tonight, I passed bridges, buildings, parks, things that are here because I and other people volunteered to make them happen. This work really matters to me. There goes my tooth. <laughs> so, <laughs> 2015 was another really big year for me. I did keep all my teeth, um, but I also met U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and he offered me a job as his Northern Michigan Regional Director, representing him in the uh, 26 counties from the knuckles up, top half of the mitten. And at the time, I was not looking for work. I loved and still love Goodwill's mission of helping people find housing, jobs, and food. It doesn't get much better or basic than that. But I thought back to my list of five must-have things. A leadership role, work with cool people, job with a positive impact, not a desk job, public service. Five big checks. This job with the senator was everything that I loved on steroids, and I love it. And if you want to chat about what I do and why I love it, we'll get another beer with Pete. I'll tell you about that. I'm kind of steering in a different direction. Between my job with the Senate and my service with the city, people ask me a lot of questions about government. And one theme that I hear, no matter what side you're on, is how did we get here? I hear that a lot lately. By here, I think folks mean feelings of disgust for government. How did we get here? I have a theory. We, the national we, got here when we, the local we, collectively decided that only idiots can be politicians. And we have this idea that public service is for somebody else. I can back this theory. In our last election, in Grand Traverse County, 33% of all races ran unopposed. 43% only had one party put forth a candidate. So think about that. Over a third, uncontested. Almost half, only one party. What's the point of even having an election if we have zero contest? Oh, I get mad about that. I'm starting to tear up. Moving on. So I heard in all this stuff, as I'm sure everybody here did, over the last year I heard people griping about Hillary and Donald. I don't like either of them. He's a monster. She's a crook. I just, I don't have any patience for this cockamamie, whiny name-calling. We get stuck with these candidates we don't like when we're unwilling to serve in our own backyard. Wow. So... I want to go back to that police officer that didn't arrest me, the, the one in Chicago, <laughs> another beer story, uh, and to that feeling that a kind gesture would shock a city employee. Because now that I'm in public service, I totally understand. Some people say the most foul garbage to their elected leaders, the people that are there to represent them. A few weeks ago, a concerned citizen left a St. Bernard-sized dog dump outside the door to my office. They obviously didn't know who they're dealing with because I've got two kids in diapers and a husky. Turds are my currency. It's going to take a lot more than a pile of dog crap to break me. 
It's not my challenge, not my challenge, but gotta try a little harder. So at the end of the day, a politician, <laughs> let that turd joke settle. Okay. Oh. I just, I can't get up without talking about poop. I'm like a seven-year-old boy in this body. So. <laughs> so at the end of the day, a politician is just a person. My boss, he's just a person. He's a dad who loves Steely Dan. I'm just a person. I like garlic, bottle rockets, Merlot, and South Park. I really try hard to be a good mom. I love this place. I care a ton. This is what it looks like to be a politician. I'm owning it, and I'm proud of it, and it's okay, and we've got to stop being so scared of that word. Politician doesn't have to be dirty. Doesn't. So, okay, well, that was nice. In, in his farewell address... President Obama said, change is possible when ordinary people demand it. Change is possible. It is possible when ordinary people demand it. And in that vein, my challenge to you is twofold. First, support people who serve. When we talk trash about folks in office, our kids hear us. These words scare them from service. And if you want to hear a story about that, talk to Chandler and I. Our son has said some very colorful language about the POTUS. We need to work on our... uh, filters around the kids. So we, you got to watch it. You really got to watch it. And if you don't like the, pers- the actions of a person who represents you, call them up and say something. Somebody like me, probably me, will answer the phone, and I listen, and so does my boss. Your voice totally matters. Pick up the phone. Second part of my challenge, serve. You knew I was going to say that. Start hyper-local. Your neighborhood association, a nonprofit board, your garden club, my pal Melissa West, her parents here tonight. She was a stay-at-home mom who successfully ran for Elk Rapids Village Council, and I see her in her minivan, and it speaks to me, it inspires me. No matter who you are, your voice is going to represent somebody, so don't rule yourself out. It's really important. In Traverse City alone, there are 19 appointed governance boards that need you. And if you want to go for one of them, I have the application right here. (laughs) I will buy you all the courage beers you need, all the beer that Pete Kirkwood will sell us, and we'll get you that seat. I'm paying forward what the young professionals did for me seven years ago. So to close, I want to leave you with a little bit of the Lorax. If any of you take me up on the offer to consider serving tonight, first one who does gets this book. So to close, I want to leave you with a little Dr. Seuss, a word from the Lorax. He warns us to take care of our home. His message is simple. And I hope you take it to heart. The Lorax says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Thank you.